Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm pretty well, thank you, and I'm pleased to report that the Oxford English Dictionary has decided on the word of the year, Riz, R-I-Z-Z. Yes, the kids say this, charisma. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. it's... uh, They use it as a verb, too. Uh, Are you going to go Riz or up, is what they say. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. It it relates to Greece, does it not, Uh, the movie? Uh, I mean, I think it's... Got some, oh, is it? Know, maybe some peripheral resonance, but I thought it was an interesting counterpoint to the Merriam-Webster people who chose as their word of the year, authentic. Ooh, ooh, kind of some tension, friction. Ooh, that yeah. feels like a shot fired, maybe against the Oxford Dictionary authenticity it's it's kind of well there's certainly some disparity there that would get you thinking you know what is the prefix a u t h because it's an author authority authenticity what is a u t h well it's linked to the creator yeah the the you know the i mean it's more related to uh well i suppose it's about provenance and and uh original source Mm-hmm. The connection between uh, author and authority, you know. The Greek word authentikos from the Latin authenticus from the Middle English word authentic. Um, but it's not showing me what I actually want. Etymology. You have created a etymology etymologist monster in me. I love it. I love it. Uh, I've got so many. See. I've you know this is. Uh, I'm spreading the 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 fever, and this would come up later in the show. It because it is it's uh, it it really is contagious once you get onto it. Okay, so autos self, right? Like you said, and then hentes doer or being, self being authenticness is self being. I like yeah, that. Well, emblematic, I suppose. I think that's kind of. The essence of you know the thing that that really means itself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, witness to itself. That makes a lot of sense because when somebody is being inauthentic, they're not being themselves. But isn't it interesting though? Authenticity, as a word, feels more ambient than that. When you get into the etymology, it feels very personal. Auto, right? The self doer, mm. but authenticity feels separate from it has a spiritual feeling to me authenticity does uh an outside well i will say an outside of the body feeling well i think that's an interesting counterpoint to what many would say is uh a product mass produced issue connected with industrialization and replication you know is it a copy is it a print or is it the original, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's one of those really, really difficult words. And it's related to perhaps, well, my argument, the most contentious word in the English language and its related forms in other languages, the word real. Absolutely. 
100% agreement. That is the most contentious, contentious word. And you see those words in a modern sense being interchangeable. Are you being real? Just means yeah. are you being authentic? So yeah. authenticity is directly connected. I think this is connected. what we want to get people thinking about. Um, this is what my smaller, elegant subset book, uh, which I'm calling 52 Words Away, uh, as a pullout from the memory and alertness book. But this is one of the things that, that you know, our show has been really about from the get go. And well, this episode, certainly I've got some interesting, uh, the tool is all about this. The tip is all about this and how one of my students really put it to use. So mm-hmm. this is all, you know, it, it language therapy is not a new idea. And you and I have never said it is. But our approach to it, I think, is radical and um, just relentless. And I think that is the way to enliven the mind, expand the mind, and really preserve some psychic sovereignty. Absolutely. Um, My birthday rolled around on Friday. Oh, happy birthday. Oh, man. And I got a lot of nice cards from the kids i don't know how they found out a teacher must have told them but i, uh, I missed that okay. oh don't feel bad don't feel bad at all um let me see if i have some that i can show you and i will make it interesting for the listeners as well this one is very festive oh, yeah okay very festive it, it says happy birthday in purple lettering and it's got a cake and it looks like what do you call two? What do you wait? Oh, what do you call two ducks and a cow? Quackers and milk. All right. I guess they I decided to put they decided to put jokes on this one. Um Mr. Here we go. Osborne. Oh wow. This, it's hard to see, but that's a jar of pickles. Uh why did the pickle have so much fun at the birthday party? Because it relished every minute, and so these are there. There's a stack oh, of them. That's fantastic, right here. man! That's really yeah. cool. <laughs> they know that's I like dad jokes, so they they showed up. They sure did. I think that's terrific, David. That's really really cool. Um, and yes, a belated happy. I have to admit, I'm not really good at birthdays. I I don't. I it's me strange. neither. Once me neither. I I still like. I can remember two wives ago, you know, and I should have really put that out of mind, but I'm afraid I haven't. But mm-hmm. um, that's great that your your students came to the party. That's terrific. Yeah, they had a, a cookie cake and a, a regular cake. Another teacher bought it, obviously. But uh, no, and we are continuing on with writing after school writing club. It has now become the most popular, the flagship club of the entire school. Fantastic. Um, surprising everybody except for me because I'm a disciple of Chris Sacknesson, so I can get people excited about words and writing. And we are all working now on a visual novel. Uh, I've learned the the application, the software, to create the visual element of the novel, and I had my whiteboard out and I had these students all, you know, throwing ideas out. And we came up with the idea of a, a story about a high school student 
who has moved back to his hometown and encounters three people, his uh, kind of long lost childhood friend who's become a, a, a sort of cowboy loner, the popular girl and a gossip. And the purpose of the visual novel, which acts as a sort of hybrid between a choose your own adventure book and a kind of almost a game um, is to make friends with all of them. But the twist is when you're at a party, a magical crystal breaks and you inhale the dust and you develop the ability to read minds. So it is a friendship simulator where your character can hear the thoughts of what the people who he's talking to are thinking. And the game element of it is how much you use your psychic ability, because if you use it too much, you're, you'll freak them out and push them away. So you have to try to use it judiciously. And the book, the uh, visual novel, I should say, its tentative title is Get Out of My Head. I love every aspect of that. I think this is where the future of storytelling lies. I think this absolutely resonates with a major uh, idea and revelation I've had to share about um, one of our uh, major thematic focal points for the coming year. I think that's terrific, David. I, I love every every bit of that. That sounds really fun. It is. Thank you. Um, without further ado, though, let's get into the show. So okay. you sent me a picture, a text, and you said very cryptically, let me pull it up here. Uh, this will make sense tonight. Okay. So can you tell me more about this picture and its relation okay. to your band? Well, one of my students is actually uh, a pretty accomplished Hollywood actor. He, uh, I won't go into the details there, but show business background, has a parent connected with Cirque du Soleil, so kind of in the game in Vegas and Hollywood. Um, but he's got a band that he's really excited about, and I was listening to some of the music and, and was trying to sort of, you know, just, we were just, chatting and uh he said you're you're good with with names and ideas uh i've got another friend who's got a, a band they just don't have any I, idea about a name and i've been looking at this story that with the headline and the photograph that i sent you and the headline was simply mother killed by shark <laughs> and for listeners the picture i sent david is um, uh, it's a composite of a very basic standard uh, family portrait of a mother figure with a guitar, sort of a, a vintage shot. And this is superimposed on a background of a beach. And somehow the notion of this woman with her guitar and the headline, Mother Killed by Shark. Well, I shared this with my young hip professional actor student and he had a, a just an incredible laughing fit and oh, it's so incredibly God. funny and it's, it's hilarious i just so that was my my band and i then i thought well what would that 
what would they actually sound like independent of, of, you know, an actual band like my student's friend? And it occurred to me that they would be um, kind of a weird combination of tragedy and really benign wisdom, beneficent wisdom. They're burned out acid casualty rock folk singers from like a mama's and the papa's kind of background, but they've survived. And while they are just drug addled old people, they've actually kind of mellowed and really grown into the zeitgeist in a kind of shamanistic sort of way. And they're, they've got songs like Everybody's on the Spectrum, but their album title is Do You Know Where Your Parents Are? And it's a comment kind of on dementia and Alzheimer's, but also like for the parents who are still very fit, you know, why aren't they taking care of the grandkids? Because they're off vacationing and enjoying what, you know, remains of their lives. So they've kind of... They're all drugged out hippies, but they've retained a kind of peculiar sense of irony and mm -hmm. also acceptance of how times have changed. So mother killed by sharks. That's great. And do you have an aphorism for us today? I have a few, actually. I've got some treats here, but I wanted to just show David and I talk often about the technique of inversion. And I want to keep that uh, really live to air by just showing it in practice as often as possible. And I think this is a kind of interesting sort of uh, poetic way to think of it. And I think writers could maybe kind of enliven a sentence or two with the concept of inversion. The line is, it occurs to me that the inverse of a Viking helmet is a leopard skin pillbox hat. And I think that, I mean, it's obviously subjective and it is just a poetic phrase, but I think there's something kind of fun about that. I mean, a Viking helmet is something that, you know, Flavor Fave wears now. It's kind of over the top and, and ridiculous, but also wonderful. And I think a leopard skin pillbox hat is, is, also like that i think it takes a bit of gumption to pull that off and i like mm -hmm. the fact that the viking helmet is associated with males the leopard skin pillbox hat more females although you can get a kind of fez sort of thing happening but i like that as an, an inversion um this are you, is are, are, do you remember the the musical artist pharrell the producer yes Pharrell went through a phase where I guess he was trying to make a fashion statement, but he would show up on red carpets in these enormous, like enormous, like the Arby's sign, enormous uh, Dudley Do-Right Mountie hats. And yeah, that's yeah. neither a Viking helmet nor a pillbox hat, but that's what I suddenly, when you said that yeah. it takes, he it takes a, really, a certain kind of, yeah, uh, it was yeah. a definitely do right. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah. 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 And uh, it was just one of those moments where somebody took a fashion risk and owned it and it did not pan out. 
you know, no. I'm, I'm reminded of those. Uh, another recent fashion trend has been these big kind of uh, uh, garish Astro Boy red boots that people have been wearing. They look like they're made out of plastic. Like um, those didn't really take off either, despite being very expensive. They had a flash in the pan moment. But Well, I wonder if they... You know, if fashions take off, then they're no longer someone's signature, you know? And mm -hmm. I think there's a fine line between being remembered for something because nobody else could pull it off. That's kind of what they thought about the Dudley Do-Right hat. I, the, the, it was just a wonderful sort of ridiculous look. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it. I, I not everything could take off, I suppose. You know, I think that's kind of by definition, but it's still we remember kind of the just the oddness of it but uh here's my Here second aphorism and i i had to really uh, i was i had this big freelance writing job in addition to teaching and i got really really tired working over overnight and um I came up with the line, when the nails become worms, it's time to watch out. You know, just a little reminder about, you don't have to be on some interesting substance to have some strange visions. But here's my final one for the week. This is a, a Lost Explorers alternative tagline. We put the cult in culture. I like that one. I like that. That's fun that's fun i feel like cults get a really bad rap and people very seldom look at the at the good things that cults do and i mean that sincerely cults have a lot to author offer i should say yeah a little, I, a little slip I, there i think they have a lot to author and a lot to offer i couldn't agree more i mean let's uh i mean that is a word that doesn't you know shouldn't have this weird force field around it mm -hmm. it's um it's like dwarves, you know, they're, it's magical, you know. If I found a good cult, I would join it. Absolutely. You're supposed to, in social media parlance, you're supposed to hear somebody say, you know, you're in a cult, right? And immediately think to yourself, oh, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be there. But I feel like if somebody told me that I was in a cult, my response would be, well, I hope it's a good one. Is it one of the good ones or is it one of the drinking Kool-Aid ones? Well, you're you're a you know a cult leader in training. I mean, we've often talked about that. So Un unashamedly, unapologetically cults, true. Man. Yeah, unapologetically true. Um, what is my imaginative challenge for today? Okay, well, I think this resonates really nicely with the visual novel that you and your students are embarked on because it's based on a a method that I've been putting to use. And, you know, a lot of, uh, well, I don't know that many fellow teachers for good reason, um, but some people that really looked at me like, oh, I don't know if this is such a good idea, but it's turned out to be an enormous success. And I encourage other teachers uh, to explore it. But I was thinking of the everyman plays, the classic sort of allegorical plays from like the 15th century. Now, those are like Pilgrim's Progress. They have a Christian overlay in the Western tradition. No, 
no question about that. But I just simply uh, pull that apart and sort of secularize it, so to speak, to make everyone feel comfortable. But the idea is that students on an improv sort of basis, it's good team exercise, have to think in big archetypal terms and create a story where they are portraying and bringing to life you know, major concepts, major characteristics of human nature. And it's really proven very successful. So I'm going to give you a very general assignment tonight where you are constructing a classic allegorical everyman life journey scenario. And you play a very important character within the drama, a strange character. And I think a character that is both very much in character for you and very much out of character in a way. I think if we were actually casting and creating a new everyman sort of play, and we were trying to think about who should play this figure, uh, I don't know if it would be you. So I think it's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting stretch. But what you are going to be bringing to life, so you can, you've got to think about bringing to life the character, but also your part of, of the larger scenario, perhaps not the whole play, but your involvement with it. You're playing the character of Taboo. That which is forbidden. And I think that's an interesting challenge. I think that that, and that's, this is also an example of how I'm innovating with these allegorical characters because they're, you know, they're not charity and wisdom. There are some stranger things, you know? Very interesting. I like it. So I, this is an allegorical everyman life journey and I am the character of taboo. Yeah. Yeah, the gears are spinning. All right. So let me make one quick note. And think of it as a stage play, you know, with with Mm -hmm. the the limitations, but also the imaginative possibilities of that, you know. Awesome. And I have to warn you and, and tease listeners with we have got a fantastic imaginative challenge for david coming up for christmas he did a wonderful job in the past with mayhem in the manger a terminator scenario of the three wise men one of the three wise men going rogue and attempting to or charged with the assassination of the baby jesus and this year's one coming up in a couple of weeks time uh, I haven't told David a word about it. I think it uh, it will give equal scope. I find it, sorry, I choked on my spit. I find it hard to believe that Mayhem in the Manger was a year ago. Time is very strange. <clears throat> it is enormously strange. I, 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 I second that. I... Uh, and, you know, I honestly, I would have to go back in the files to see what we, you know, did the year before. Um, I'm, I don't know. 
I don't know. It's I, it's that Greek Greek concept. I don't know if it's uh it's it isn't Kronos because that's linear clock time. It might be Kairos. Uh their conception of every Wednesday is the same Wednesday. This conception of time via events. Mm-hmm. And so every time we do this podcast in the chrono in the chronos sense, you know, you and I have been talking for maybe a week, a couple weeks, and life is happening in the meantime. So it's a very interesting balance. But at the same time, yeah, I could I feel like <clears throat> when you said <clears throat> last year I did mayhem in the manger, I thought that's not right. That wasn't a year ago, but indeed it was. Well, I'm I'm glad that because it, it um well it still <clears throat> sticks in my mind very much, but I did have a moment of thinking, could that have been two years ago? And I thought, Ooh. no, I don't think so. Yeah. We're in a strange time slip and we do lost explorers. Time time literally has no meaning on this podcast. It doesn't. It doesn't. And it's very, I mean, this is something we're going to really dig ever more deeply into in 2024. Um, I was just brainstorming out a list of, of possible, you know, subject areas to go in. But I, I think that certainly how memory and time relate and, and the larger concepts of signal and noise how we determine those. Those are a couple of big thematic areas. Uh, it's just very exciting. I can't wait to actually, um, well, we're going to carry on with with Atlantean thinking, thinking like a culture, which is one of the ideas that you introduced us last year. Um, I'm just so excited. I can barely contain myself. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, me too. one overarching and underlying uh tone i think and not that it won't be challenged but it will be is radical optimism you know i really feel like we need to get extremely muscular and energized like grasshoppers you know Uh as vigorous Uh as grasshoppers in your hand you know that kind of strength of, of character and direction and purpose to in order to survive 2024. I like that. I like that. I want to talk about the note you sent me for this show, which I may in fact just read straight through. It's uh, about dunce cap questions. It's called introducing dunce cap questions. Here we go. Every day we do things we don't want to do because we feel we must do them. We spend so much time thinking and complaining about this conflict, we stop seeing what the conflict involves. What are its strange implications? Well, that one word, quote, must, unquote, screams out for some forensic inquiry, doesn't it? If, quote, should, unquote, gives rise to rippling layer worlds of hypotheticals, assumptions, predictions, and unreasonable demands, a ghostly pseudo-rationality based entirely on unfounded claims of knowledge, what must, or what about the imperative of must, you must, says who? I suggest that the single best way to teach practical philosophy 
or to teach philosophy in a practical manner is by pulling apart this single question. Why are there things that you have to, must do that you don't want to do? Isn't that a lovely dunce cap question? By that, I mean innocent, pathetic, but empathetic, a question that has rhetorical intrigue precisely because it seems simple, childish. I also call them dancing men questions from the Sherlock Holmes adventure about secret codes. Print this question out and have it on a wall that you can't avoid seeing. Why do you have to do things that you don't want to do? I brought up uh, <clears throat> English teachers have corny senses of humor, but a running gag with me and a friend of mine uh, in the English department is going full Bartleby and preferring <laughs> not to. Yeah, yeah, nice. Um, and I think that the story of Bartleby the Scrivener is instructive in this why must we do things because that's really the central idea of that tale is that it's a person who just says no i don't want to i prefer not to i prefer not to (laughs) and it drives the narrator insane but you have to yeah but i prefer not to so bartleby in this case is the dunce cap questioner but i think it's a good one why do you have to why do you have to pay taxes Bartleby reference because i think that that is a very very peculiar if not singular short story in english mm-hmm. i mean it mm-hmm. stands out even very very strangely from all of melville's other work and that was pretty uh dappled and palominoed, so to speak. I mean, it was a mixture of things that were very, you know, sometimes he seemed to have a real thematic direction. And other times things just get so strange. The Civil War poetry, Pierre, the novel that he followed up Moby Dick with. But out of all his, you know, very quirky uh, life work, Bartleby doesn't fit in anywhere it doesn't fit into anything it's one of those very strange uh stories that sticks in everybody's mind once they've they they experienced it but what i think is interesting about this what we must do thing and why i think it might be a key for people who might not be predisposed in any way to enjoy philosophy or, you know, there's always a question of what is the inroad to get people thinking in, you know, philosophical terms. And sooner or later, everybody finds something, even if they're in denial about that. But I think this notion of what we have to do covers everything from physical survival and the nature of material existence Maslow's, you know, you know, theory of needs, the pyramid of needs, social connections, but it also gets back to personal psychology. And one of the issues that you were really strong on going back uh, 
Well, over several episodes, but going back a long time, back to episodes 20 through 30, perhaps that's just off the top of my head, about how we become our own taskmasters, our own uh, colonial masters, and how we yield sovereignty. And we're not sure to whom or to what. You know, we want to blame something external to us. But in fact, we're probably really, you know, uh, very, very responsible for the this loss of agency, even if we're not clear on who we've assigned it to. But this notion of imperative, and I've, I've suggested that it's also connected to the slightly softer conditional should, but I don't think that should is any, uh, I think it's more insidious than must in a way, but I think you get the notion of some sort of hypothetical framework world, a metaphysics, if you like, that is not really clear to people. Um, and I think this is one of our goals is to try to uh, make people a little bit more aware of hidden algorithms and the scaffoldings of metaphysics, which they often might just completely deny, but which are nevertheless very operational in their lives as evidenced by their language. So that to me is, uh, and also the idea of dunce cap questions of being able to kind of go simple-minded a little bit, a little bit uh, child, a little bit AI, a little bit off-kilter to break up some of the crust. Uh, I was thinking about the old days when I had a septic tank out in the in the country. And, you know, the day when it was time to get it cleaned out, uh, you know, some old grizzled guy who looked like he drew, drove the septic tank truck. He'd come out and go, well, it's time to break the crust, you know. And that's the only way I think we can break the crust of, of really static, unexamined thinking, which is paralyzing us individually, societally, and culturally. And dunce cap questions are a way of doing that, I think. I like dunce cap questions a lot as well for that for that reason. It is how I survive as a teacher with the type of people who I interact with, who are very lovely people, by the way, but people with whom I do not see eye to eye. I enjoy asking very simple childish why questions. Well, why mm -hmm. is that? Why? And then pretending that I don't know what's going on when uh, somebody will say something about, I don't know, you know, a COVID thing, I'll say, oh, huh. And why is that? And it's funny because as you could probably guess, <clears throat> within two or three very simple whys, they actually become flustered mm -hmm. with you. They don't become mad at you because I'm a pretty decent social actor and I can put on the face that I really just don't know. I was, I'm, you know, I take care of my kid and I read fiction a lot and uh, I paint my little uh, space marine figure guys. I, I have no idea. I don't know what you're talking about, but they, 
become ambiently frustrated with their own inability to, to articulate why a thing has to happen. When it comes to must also, I think taking it to a radical extreme point, I think of those IRA guys who, uh, or one guy, I think, I can't remember his name, who starved himself as mm-hmm. a protest. Uh, when you think of these kind of radical protesters who starve themselves or uh, the the Buddhist monk who lit himself on fire in protest, right. yeah, um, those to me, while both being instances of suicide, and what we're talking about does not necessitate suicide, they do represent radical agency. And they do represent not just radical agency, but a radical rebuttal to the idea that you must do anything. Right? Well, go ahead. I think that's absolutely right. And I think all those, those are really severe extreme examples that, that we could look at, you know, more. I mean, another person comes to mind, uh, David Blaine, the mm-hmm. magician and, uh, you know, extremist. Uh, he's always putting his body to the test to show really that basically that, our notions of what is possible and impossible need to be challenged. And I think that's true of all, everyone that we would count an adventurer of any kind, any kind, any Mm -hmm. kind. Um, We're we're talking about not accepting a framework, which is ultimately metaphysical in, in very literal terms that hasn't really been examined, you know, and, and this is the thing where it it's, it's great to uh to have a metaphysics we support that entirely but that needs to be examined and reviewed and not chopped and changed and and shuffled around and really just a mishmash of uh unconsidered worldviews that form a, a very sad patchwork horse oh ooh, ooh. okay so acquiescence to the must is an indicator of an immature or not fully developed worldview it is if it's uh if it hasn't really been broken down and examined and and if you're not sort of clear on well where is that imperative coming from to whom to what are you assigning this authoritarian position that you must respond to in a kind of submission sort of way. The secondary point to this, though, which I think is really um, equally important and almost more likely to be overlooked in certainly Western society, is that why is it that because you have to do something, you don't want to do it? I mean, clearly that's not really right. There are a lot of things like eating, for example. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, and our our positions and can change on that. I mean, to maybe have to to have to bathe or shave every day might be an imposition. But on the other hand, if you see a homeless person, you know, in a public restroom trying to clean themselves up, you think. Wow, I I get to go home and take a really beautiful hot bath and listen mm-hmm. to fantastic music and clean myself up. I get to have a clean butthole, you know, mm-hmm. and and really, you know, uh, it what a joy 
you know? So mm -hmm. I think there are two things there that, that we need to really look very closely at what we in fact have to do every mm -hmm. day. And then if we did get a different perspective on that, and I think one of our big themes is you don't have to have some amazing epiphany, giant revelation about them. Just a slight little shift in perspective, just a modest change in the Venn diagram relationships, little things. That's enough to trigger perhaps very big expansions of new opportunity, new horizon. And if we can do that, then I think we could say, well, maybe our attitudes about what we must do, because we've now we've reinventoried that, right? That's our that's the idea. And we have a better inventory. We've given it some real thought. And we've decided a little bit more about our level of agency relative to the world at large. And maybe we've thought about the world at large. I mean, do we mean society? Do we mean uh, God? You know, there's a big difference between having to pay right. a bill and feeling guilty about something. Or, you know, right. there's a lot of, of different levels. So we're exploring those levels of responsibility mm -hmm. and seeing then how much agency we have to navigate those layers and planes of responsibility. And in doing that, we might come around to just a little bit more enjoyment of something we didn't like to do. I'll give you an excellent example. For some reason, and I know it's, and this is where irrationality figures in. For me, I don't know why I, I have problems with the dishwasher. I'm very grateful to have my dishwasher. I stack the, I do it effectively, but somehow I am always sort of at odds with it. Whereas I find laundry and being able to just, I really love my washer and dryer. I love the independent, I, I, everything about that is good. And it's the same sort of process, but I have an irrational uh, dissonance between those two things. So what I'm talking about is, is being just little tiny changes that might make us just more appreciative because if we're appreciative, we're flexible. We've got our balance. We've got some strength. We're capable of doing more things. When we're resentful, we're off balance. We're more likely to hurt ourselves. We're more likely to get angry. You know, it's just not a good look. I agree. I think this might be a strange example, but I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Um, have you ever eaten at the fast food restaurant called Chick-fil-A? You know, I have to say I have not. So Chick-fil-A might be a more Midwest thing. It's a no, very... no, it's out here. It's out oh, here. Oh, okay. no, no. It's just okay. one of those, for whatever reason, it's just, you know, and I don't eat a lot of franchise food. So, but I, for it, it's on my list of those for whatever reason. I just haven't, you know, gone into. At Chick-fil-A. 
which is a Christian company. They're closed on Sundays. Um, they have gotten in trouble notoriously because their owners hold conservative Christian values. But I have that, heard of that. Yes. <laughs> that restaurant runs like a well-oiled machine. The frenetic pace of breakfast, lunch, and dinner is nothing to these people. They go about their business like the Amish or Mormons with a smile, a blank smile on their face and uh, really satisfactory service. And they are instructed anytime you say thank you to them to say my pleasure. And the idea of saying my pleasure to being thanked for performing a task seems to me to be the spiritual opposite of the must imperative or even the should imperative because my pleasure indicates you know satisfaction in servitude towards something and i think that if you have satisfaction in servitude towards something, you have completely denied the must its oxygen because you have something that you're moving towards. And that could be a God. It could be a cause. It could be your friends. It could be, it could be anything really, but you never have to, or you, like, I've never felt like I must change Gus's diaper. You see what I mean? Yes, I do. I absolutely. It's also it's also let me be clear, not my pleasure to do so. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like I have to or I must. It is simply a task and in my role as steward of this young boy, it's a thing that I do. Am I making sense? Just, oh, you this... totally are. And I think okay, this cool. connects back to a very very big principle we we've, we've spoken of from the beginning of the show the british philosopher gilbert ryle's notion of categories and which builds on whitehead and russell's theory of logical types and it sounds very academic or philosophical but it's extremely practical because it gets down to how we shape categories and and Roth is thinking in terms of concept and language. So he is thinking of it on that sort of plane. But we can bring that right down to practical, very, very basic everyday life situations. How we categorize things, this should, must, these categories, how we break that down to what is our pleasure or what is just natural for us to do. I mean, isn't this one of the big problems that Gen Z is facing, and some of my students are becoming really aware of it, that to uh, that anxiety, for instance, I've had a couple of them say, uh, they've really taken issue with, with that word, and, and as a condition, as a psychological condition, like unto depression, they say, well, sometimes you're anxious, and there's reason for it. So mm-hmm. the should mm-hmm. must create these false frameworks that we're always trying to perform to. They're like the Joneses, the mythic neighbors that we're trying to keep up with. Mm-hmm. It's all mm-hmm. a phantom world. And we don't know who, where that comes. Does it come from social media? Does it come from the media? Does it come from our family and friends? Or does it? are we responsible for it? But it doesn't really matter because what we're talking about tonight really is about 
dissolving those very rigid barriers, making them more permeable membranes that we can move between so that at least sometimes we feel more as if it is our pleasure, it's our joy, it's our source of appreciation, or it's just simply what we do, you know? I mean, if you have to take what the you must do down to the level of what your body must do, well, all those things are done for you. You know, we don't have to think about beating our heart or doing what our liver does. If we had to deal with it, consciously run our livers, that would be all we do. Mm -hmm. We'd be liver, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or, or lung. Yeah. Or, or, or on and on and on. Mitochondria. <laughs> yeah. Mitochondria. You know, you yeah, go on, yeah. on So it's really about shifting between necessity and possibility, between being, uh, you know, just submissive to being appreciative, you know, and, and in, in really very down to earth ways. Mm -hmm. just that shift i mean the moment and we all know that really i mean we all know that sometimes something you know we drop something we have to clean it up you know it it's a real hassle and it can really trigger just a whole series of other hassles or it can be like not a breeze and it's just done and gone you know and all of that is we say it's attitude, yes, but I think it's actually another way to think of it is metaphysical worldview. I think mm. it's very practically performed, you know, mm -hmm. so it doesn't seem fancy, metaphysical, weird. It's just, no, you're cleaning up, you're changing the diaper, you're, you know. Oh, it's emblematic. Yeah. It's, it's emblematic actions. Yeah. Yes, that's... That's the way to think. Well, so what we're saying, that's beautiful. So what we're saying is how to stay in the emblematic groove mm -hmm. as much of our lives as possible. We are getting into uh, a very Eastern territory here, I feel. A lot of just doing, a lot of just sweep the floor, you know, count your breaths, do the things that need doing. Not because you must do them, but because that is your, isn't that interesting too, that taking the agency bit that we talked about, as soon as you have real agency and real pleasure in service, that independent, that true independence slots you so cleanly and perfectly into a groove. Yeah. That is the way to become collective yep. and to become a group is to radically develop your own agency. I think that's beautifully said. And that has a real uh, interesting uh, connection with in the last couple of uh, weeks, whenever I have had a little bit of, of downtime, I am. Um, I stumbled onto a BBC mystery series called The Inspector Allen Mysteries. Allen is double L-E-Y-N. And it's, I'd never heard of it before. 
but it's set in post-war Britain, so the 19, late 1940s. And the, the key character is a, an aristocratic, but nevertheless, chief inspector for Scotland Yard. So he's kind of got a profession that's, well, people respect him because he's so good at it. But his background is very posh. And there's a lot of class, British class, because, you know, and, and Americans love that. I think that's why the show is popular. Uh, and it's very, it's the, all of the period, the cars, the fashion, everything. But in listening to the language and listen, just really seeing the relationship between the characters, I kind of reviewed the whole English class structure which can seem so oppressive to so many people. And a lot of modern mm -hmm. literature was about breaking away with from that. You know, think of D.H. Lawrence. In a large part, I mean, here he was a coal miner's son, so of course he had some issues with that. But the romance of the royals and the romance of aristocracy still pervades American consciousness, and maybe Britain's consciousness a little bit still too. But I think one of the things that if you stand back and just kind of hear it musically and, and see it almost as a dance rather than trying to understand the, the drama at the, the script writing level, what I have taken away is that a lot of what seems or could seem oppressive or repressive about those structures is actually very liberating because people know where they are. They mm -hmm. know the correct forms of address. They know a lot of, of stuff falls away that we're having to make up and think, and do we, you know, and we don't really have a structure and socially, and do we open the door for the woman? And, you know, what do we do? You know, we're all confused now. And there's a kind of ceremonial stately structure to these shows. And, and maybe that's just, you know, the romantic script. I don't know. But I think that we we're, we're swept into that world. Yes, you are. You are absolutely pinpointing my fascination with uh, Samurai and Yakuza. Yes. Films OK. And books. That's a great other. See that. So we're, we are talking about something that is structurally real because we can look at it in different contexts, different cultural interpretations of that. And I think there's an immense liberating quality to what might seem from another point of view to be overly rigid. And, and of course there are possible problems with it, but our culture has been in the last 50 years so relentlessly uh, acidic and solvent, you know, we're trying to dissolve all of, of the protocols, all of the boundaries, all of the navigational points. And what we're getting is just a sort of nanotech sludge of yes. social confusion. Social confusion. And <clears throat> I think a, a kind of whiplash too, because when you, don't have these very clear class and social indicators um, and nobody is willing to remind you that they exist, you're eventually going to overstep a boundary and very quickly be put back into place. Because one of the most popular myths that Americans live under is that we don't have class in our society. Mm -hmm. 
oh. or classless. Not true. Not, not true even, at all. Not oh. even close to being true. I was as as a young man. I thought that class could be transcended. It can't. Not not grace, not without a lot of grace. You need to be graceful about how you transcend class. But try to be a a guy whose mom lives in a trailer in Oklahoma and go to some of these uh, fancy writer parties and act like you're talking to your buddies around a fire in the backyard and feel the whiplash of being pulled back into reality and realizing, nope, doesn't matter how charming or handsome you are. You're not supposed to be here. We're reading Gatsby right now. Gatsby's great about this. Yes. It's one of the best parts of the movie because Gatsby, uh, you know, no matter what he does and who he involves himself with and how much money he makes, he'll never be Tom and he'll no. never get Daisy. No, just, that's really the essential uh element of the story i think that's really really well said and we do have we we have this desperate problem in america about this and i think this is something we really do need to peel apart just as a subtext not as a major theme but as a subtext line for 2024 is that you know we are we, we we're obsessed with talking about race and gender and identity and yet americans have never been able to talk about class mm-hmm. and some of the most important uh, moments in American literature are when, when authors have tried Faulkner tried, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the Snopes you know, and I mean, it's, that's a heavy, heavy element of his whole uh, mythology and certainly Fitzgerald and, uh, in, in a way, I think that's one of the things that is the highlight of their thinking. They were able to kind of bring some of the Theodore Dreiser often, you know, seen as kind of a heavy handed writer. I, he had a lot to say about that. Mm-hmm. And I remember from early, early days of uh, reading your writing and, and then meeting you in Portland and your stories of Oklahoma bar work and hot dogs and brawls. And there was a mm-hmm. lot to do with class awareness. There was a lot mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think another writer that we like, Brian Allen Cart, you know, is, is very. Totally. That he's extremely class conscious. Yeah. Extremely class conscious. And if you ever, when he pops up on Twitter and goes after some of these writers, You'll see exactly what he means because what we all found, Brian, myself, Kelby, I'm you know this. Uh, m- most of us who've been around long enough are savvy to this. But if you don't fit in with the upper middle class liberal white establishment mm-hmm. in books. You're not getting anywhere. It's that simple. I mean, I I yeah. wish I had really seen that as clearly as you've just said it. Uh, well, back when I was your age, but I, I did not. I really was in denial about that. I, I was seeing kind of the time lag acceptance of right. some other alternative outlaw figures. And I believed in the outlaw aesthetic. But there is a real inside line and it's come 
entirely to the four of light. I just had a big flame war with someone who I shouldn't really, I, I thought was a friend and uh, someone who appears in my textbook. And it was really just, uh, I don't know, I thought it was an ad hominem attack on me for a very reason, just simple statement on social media that I, I thought was. Was it the one where you said that you like having a penis? Was it that one? Uh, it was related. Yeah, that one. Yeah. I thought it was well, a good post. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I think that, that what what goes along with these class distinctions in America today is this ferocious uh, identitarian sort of uh, political frame that is never well thought out. No, no. It's policy. It's it's all to absolve these people. Yes. Of of the reality of class. Yes. That's what That's every, whether whether it is race, gender, sexuality, everything th- I really do believe that this is a thought conspiracy to make sure that you never have to acknowledge class ever ever and i think that what you end up seeing is you end up seeing people who pretend to be of a class that they are not um they pretend sometimes even to be racist that they're not there was a a recent scandal with a a woman who who i i know uh pretty decently okay i got her into a a magazine back in the early days and she has since you know kind of blown up i saw her book at target recently to give you an idea oh. of the scope but okay. it turned out that she is not native american though she said she was but saying that somebody is not native american is quantifiable in blood you can research that and figure it out it gets trickier when you are trying to point out the they call them pretendians which i like a lot uh, <laughs> oh, I harder, love that. It's harder to find the class pretendians, right? The people who pay lip service to uh, almost like the, the tropes of my class, but who are very much well-mannered and know what side their bread is buttered on and don't- Trust sp- fund kids. Trust fund kids, yeah. And you've known me for a long time and you've seen the ups and downs of my- you know, my personal flame wars and social upheavals. And it's always because I wasn't born with and never took the time to develop anything past the backyard campfire bullshit session. And not everybody's ready for that. (laughs) Not everybody's ready to hear that kind of straight talk, but do you want to hear about taboo? I I want to just finish up with one because this is such a, a nice, I think, just chime note to what you've just said. Thinking about this British detective show and the British framework for class, there are so often, and this is true across English literature, there are so often examples of someone from the lower classes trying to pretend and to produce evidence of Mm -hmm. some aristocratic heritage and background. Whereas the inverse happens in America, 
where people who are very well off try to pretend to be more street level or as as you know former president clinton once said every president tries to convince you they were born in a log cabin they built themselves and i think that's an interesting inversion so just wanted to get that in there before we finish but i do want to hear about taboo i think actually with that lighting that strange david has uh what could be very charming christmas lighting and i'm sure it is behind him but it's a little bit uh has another sort of flavor of other possibilities. So <laughs> he's looking a little bit more, uh, well, I wouldn't say devilish exactly, but as I'm facing him on screen, he's looking a bit more like the taboo character than when I first thought of this challenge. So away you go. Right. So we meet our everyman. Our everyman goes to work. Nine to five. He's friendly to his neighbors and the waiters at Olive Garden. He watches Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Crunchyroll, Prime, and Peacock. He holds bog standard liberal opinions that he outsources to Instagram and Twitter. He works out for 30 minutes a day and he listens to Top 40 radio. But unfortunately, he gets a bit bored. And boredom is the siren call. For taboo. It's it's the klaxon. Yes, okay. Klaxon. To the taboo, the everyman is catnip. The taboo is himself pretty bored because everybody is constantly in a state of breaking taboos today. It's not fun anymore. Everything from colored hair to making cases for minor adjusted people, the taboo is just not having fun. So Taboo is the child of boredom, constricted by the societal norms, and in our everyman, he has found his everyman. No longer has he had to resort to petty taboos like not standing up on a crowded bus for a pregnant woman. At this point, the Taboo is a beggar. He's haggard. He's strung out. I'm thinking something like Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. Kind of, He's a Joker figure who causes chaos everywhere he goes but he's he's more somehow more messed up than the joker more more ugly it wouldn't you wouldn't want a handsome heath ledger guy to play this guy he's he's ratty so he finds the everyman and decides that he has found his fix but he doesn't know what he's getting into he begins to introduce small taboos The everyman goes home and can't find the movie on one of his six streaming services, and the taboo suggests maybe you should pirate it. But the everyman shows him the beauty of watching nothing at all. They go out to eat at Olive Garden, where he's very polite to the waiters and waitresses. And taboo suggests that he burp loudly, but the everyman excuses himself to the bathroom, and they both discover a great new candle scent. Thus begins a buddy comedy called Everyman, where Taboo, the archetype of Taboo, learns the beauty of being normal. Taboo tries to raise the stakes. He tries to take him through everything, fucking your family members, desecrating crosses, changing genders. And the Everyman, in very, by the way, dunce cap fashion, cleverly sidesteps all of them. 
we'd work that out in a writer's room. Oh. And, ta- and Taboo realizes with almost orgasmic ecstasy that he has created his own ultimate taboo. He has become an everyman. Oh, man, that was musical. That was circus. That was carnival. That was real. Oh, wow. You know, I went through so many things thinking. I love what you've done with that. I think that I was just, you know, watching. I thought you could do it just as you are. I think I might throw in an eye patch or something. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. know, the mayhem character for all state insurance, you Mm -hmm. know, he just gets, he's always causing accidents, but he's just, you know, guy in a business. Got like a butterfly bandaid on his. Yeah. 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 So something really simple. And I think you could pull it off, but I think the richness of what you've done with the, the buddy movie idea and the subversion of taboo is that's really worth thinking about because that says something about the zeitgeist that mm-hmm. really there's something big going on there about um order and disorder chaos and contentment there's a lot of interesting stuff that you flipped around there and i think a real nice olive garden oklahoma top 40 buddy movie would be the way to get that across mm-hmm. a subversive mm-hmm. genre approach to it nice yeah yeah where it goes from dank david fincher-esque green tinted you know gutter slime to by the end looking like grease you know yeah and, <laughs> and it's bright and colorful and i think that not enough movies uh sort of start awful and become good it's usually the other way around but there's just so many i you know i have a note here uh figuring out in writer's room because there are so many sit like comedic scenarios that they could be in or the everyman who would be played by a kind of you know steve carell type or something you know what i mean just a, yeah, a yeah just a yeah. just a guy um is not confused necessarily but also not angry at taboo but is more just like okay buddy look i see what you're doing and we're gonna do it this way instead and you could wrap it under as as archetypes are you know you don't have to call it every man and have every man be you know, this, this God and taboo, like you could just have uh, a kind of, you know, Mickey Rourke and Barfly type character meeting Steve Carell and being introduced to normal life. I think that would be, I think that would be cool. I think that'd be really interesting. I think if someone or a writing team could get a hold of your aesthetic, your tone, the tone of what you've laid down, I think, is the important thing. But the also, well, of course, the evolution, the shift over, uh, that would be a really amazing, it could be, it could be an amazingly adult uh, wisdom comedy. Mm-hmm. Wisdom comedy. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to think a lot about this, right? I started a new novel 
recently um, where there's a, an Indiana Jones type explorer, but he investigates uh, old ruins. But in this world, uh, giant Japanese kaiju used to exist. So he's exploring these like ancient kaiju ruins or whatever. Or, uh... Uh, so I've been working on that, but this is a very intriguing idea even as a three-act play yeah um with with you would need just two actors yeah two actors could pull it off that would be really interesting i think that would be and i think it's uh well i can't i mean i could think of a few sort of reference point examples that could help steer but i think it would be fun just to pursue it because it it is something on its own i think that that you've got uh you know an interesting dynamic there which is what i was searching for but i think the idea of of relaxing into big archetypal characters mm -hmm. that are kind of clunky allegorical figures that you can almost imagine someone carrying around you know a big cardboard thing is is part of the staging you know mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is what they have to care in a way it's liberating it's like what we were saying about class you know i love that oh the idea of two actors playing this out and having stage hands behind them holding up huge banners representing yeah. their current yeah. ar archetypal state yeah what a cool idea that would be right i think so i mean i i i really i i can i can see it and i can see that being another kind of theater that we haven't had it's mm -hmm. an old kind of theater and it goes back to yeah. you know a little bit of of exaggeration. Grand Guignol, you know, yeah. it's, no, no theater, also. Yes, absolutely. Those things mm -hmm. have a lot of power to them, and everyone's trying so hard to go the opposite way, mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. just looks stagier and stagier, or more special effectsy and more kitschy all the time, right? Because they can't really handle the big archetypal ideas, you know, mm -hmm. they really can't. Mm -hmm. This is cool. I'm going to pursue this. This is fun. Well, you're our mythos man in Olive Garden. You are able to see mm -hmm. the mythos, mm -hmm. you know, in these situations. Well done. Well Thank done. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Do you have a tool and a tip for us today? I do. I do. Um, and my tool begins, this is sort of another kind of aphorism one, but I, uh, and it ties in with my my dream notes. But I, I woke up saying to my tape recorder, you have to risk incoherence and even distress to find a new harmonic. And I've been thinking about this in terms of my, my music, uh, which I'm trying to do a range of different things. But with one piece, I really dug in and started experimenting with frequency and pitch. And I realized, well, there's no harm in experimentation. And at this stage, the only you know person I'm really going to annoy is, is myself and maybe two or three other collaborators. So why not push the envelope a little bit? And then I thought about it from another point of view. And I thought, well, look, if I'm going to in any way think of myself as an experimental composer, I'm really going to have to take music to the level of sound. You know, to really step free of the semantics of music and that big anxiety. I mean, how can you resist melody as I, I'm really prosecuting melody? And at some point, 
Well, that's going to run the risk of dissonance and and all sorts of, of things that people might go like, you know, things like my sister can't deal with, you know, it's just that's not music or my mom, you know, um, but you have to do that. And I thought, not only do you have to do that for your own sense of legitimacy, surprise, surprise, music can take it. Music can stand up mm -hmm. to the experimentation, to the prosecution. That is the amazing thing. And I then, and this is my tool, because I know some of our listeners are indeed uh, musicians and are, are facing these same immediate creative issues. But I, my, my tool is to see how this attitude applies to other fields of life. Not only creative areas not only the arts but all areas mm -hmm. how can we take if the metaphorical uh challenges to take music to the level of sound what does that mean across a whole range of things and i think it opens up enormous possibilities for what we're going to be exploring in the new year regarding the relationship, the oscillation, the conflict, the collaboration, the conspiracy of signal and noise, mm -hmm. how those ideas uh, and actualities intersect, morph, mutate, mingle, mate, eat each other alive, how that all works. But Think about the notion of taking music to the level of sound as a philosophical challenge across even the most mundane, physical, whatever you're doing. Just see how that could possibly work. That's the tool. I love that. And what is your tip for today? Okay, well, this gets back to our interest in language, which, of course, is constant, but the way we opened the show. This is a, a good example of one of my students getting getting the language bug and really mm -hmm. seeing the, the implications of using language analytic tools, as in computer tools, as in AI, as in computational linguistics, to really peel away some hidden algorithms. She came upon a headline about Taylor Swift and uh, Travis Kelsey's storybook romance, offering hope to people in a dark <laughs> And that sat with her for a moment, and she read the article, and it was also talking about relating this storybook romance between these celebrity figures to the appeal of Hallmark Channel Christmas shows. Okay. And she said, wait a minute, something about that headline, about giving people hope, triggered something. And she said it wasn't the hope. It was the word people. And she said, I don't know any male friends or family members who are on board with this. It's mm -hmm. all females. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do a little bit of serious computational linguistic analysis and see 
What's the story is? Well, she found out and is can make a beautiful rhetorical case with some great uh, statistics and great citations from entirely credible sources that, in fact, people and person, you know, this is a good example where those words really misrepresent the situation. The interest in Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey's romance, even with the NFL behind it and sports channels doing it is skews 89 to 93% female. Yeah. So we've got people doing something (laughs) strange. And this led her then, there was another word that is jumping out all across the semester, is influencer. Mm. We've talked about that. So she applied the same computer tools and has done some more research. And as of today... This is what the the official media world at large position is. But she went through the research channels to to nail this down. 77% of influencers are female. Mm. So she's beginning to build up a case Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that these neutral words are at best inaccurate, but potentially deceptive rhetorically because they're not revealing the you know at a time when we're ge- uh, gender obsessed why would we disguise these things i mean it's really quite odd and this led to a third point and and she's going to uh really develop this into a larger uh well hopefully a publishable work but the uh since october 7 there has been a lot of you know discord on on university campuses where there's now a congressional inquiry into anti-semitism and three major universities private major elite schools harvard mit and upenn so two ivy league schools and the foremost or one of two foremost technology centers the president's are were called in on the carpet to Congress to you know explain why they weren't doing more to combat the anti-Semitism. Well, as my student then points out, because she's on this role, and I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that she is female. All three of these presidents are female, and the rhetorical position that she's dun, got dun, dun. through a simple linguistic analysis is that maybe we need to rethink some of the assumptions we're making about women today, women in power, the power that women have, how language is we've. So it's an interesting progression from neutral words, such as people or persons to influencers. She then got led into sort of noticing something about society. The fact that I mean, it's no big deal that there are three university presidents who are female. That's great. But on the other hand, her argument would be, well, that's not necessarily what our assumption is. And perhaps we should review that. So the tip is really to follow your nose as a good detective with language. And you never know where something will lead. So fascinating, too. Um, I do love that, by the way, just following your nose. It's I mean, that's led to this insight, which I think is great. Power 
is a problem. Yes. The, the way that we understand power is a problem. And men have had power for a long time. And the downsides to that have been meticulously documented over the past 20 years. But what your students do, like what she's doing here that's so interesting and what she is uh, sort of the vanguard of is investigating the different but at least equally bad ways that women in power act, right? Yes. It's, you can tell that something is off, but what I've noticed as a, as a straight male white author is that when you attempt to point out these different species of bad things, people at large have not developed the experience or vocabulary to articulate them. Right. So it just be, like, they know all the ways that straight white males have fucked up. Right. And you and I do too. And we don't deny those things. But the issue is, is that people like her, you and me, recognize that there are so so your tip, um, while being good in and of itself, it's also just exploded something in my mind where I'm realizing that if there is not a cultural vocabulary for different types of evil, they can skate by unmolested. Exactly. Un- unnoticed. They're, they're completely unnoticed. Protected. They're, they're radar yeah. invisible. But here is, I think, a really, really powerful, simple way of seeing what her uh, evolution has been across this one topic area through a simple following uh, a trail of, of language breadcrumbs. You said a moment ago, men have had power. Well, in her thinking, the way she would phrase that now is that right. there have always been people with power and those in the past have happened to be male, yeah. but not, men have not necessarily had power generally. It's that in the set, the, Ooh, the category of I those like in that. power. And yeah. just, that's an enormous difference. Yeah. I stand adjusted. So that's, that's great. And you know, it really. Yeah. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Yeah, I really like that adjustment of my statement. Um, that's a great way to look at it. People yeah. have had power, and they happened to be men. Now, people have power, and they happen to not be men. Yes. And we haven't really looked at the class this, issue of power as we've, you know, that exactly, power, you know? exactly. It brings it all the way back to what we were talking about earlier about class and why yeah. I think personally, these people get so vitriolically defensive when you try to bring this stuff up and they, they just, you've seen it online, right? Where people just start spewing like, Oh, that would be what a white man would say. That would be what a yes. white man would say. That would be what a they have this this cache of weapons, not cachet, but a cache of weapons that they've been able to build up linguistically over the past few decades. 
and they aim that at whoever comes for them. Have you noticed also, by the way, that when women or, uh, or, or, you know, black men agree with the kind of things that you and I think they're labeled as, you know, self-hating like uncle Tom's for doing so. Frequently that happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Which is completely, you know, weird. I mean, it is that. weird. It is very weird and racist, I think. But um, you just cracked it wide open, I think. People have had power. And those people have been men. And now new people have power. Yep. And they recognize that one of the most efficient and effective ways to wield that power is by referencing the people who had it before them. Yep. It's really that it, it is. I mean, it's not simple. It's simple and intricate at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you been dreaming? I have. And I'm, I'm going to, we had a beautiful uh, session last episode that really dug into dreaming. And I was very grateful to share some of those thoughts that had kind of pulled together over many years of, of thinking. And I want to round that off with uh, a kind of a, a, a nice coda, I think, to that, because I have had an enormously rich uh, an immensely complex pattern of dreaming, a sort of really symphonic, uh, just, festival carnival of dreaming over the last week and a lot of the elements just simply did get lost i i just simply it was more than i could cope with and some of them really ranged from very uh strikingly personal and realistic and yet not realistic so going back to the the idea we talked about in terms of a kind of mandala map inventory of the differences between dreaming and and waking but i seized on my discipline of really picking out uh one crucial sort of image as a kind of emblematic guide to some of the thing many situations characters uh imagery that i just lost and i thought i would just read this because i this comes directly from my tape recorder, first thing in the morning, a little bit jumbled, kind of uh, uh, sort of a, a, a poem in progress. But it helped me get to a coherent thing, which I would also like to read. And my idea here is seizing on emblematic imagery, trying to make a discipline of recovering that is a means of recovering or discovering some really powerful material that you feel you might have lost. And so here's what I I was able to dictate. Stained cement watchtowers over a desolate grade of beach. Tanks, jeeps, and other military vehicles, some almost Cambrian-looking and crustacean, others sleek, slick and shimmering with innovation, struck, stranded, empty, a few burned out, all brutalized by starfish or starfish-like blisters. Hooded and face-shrouded nomads appear on deformed camels 
and what may have once been donkeys. Others ride on or in caged ATVs, a small herd of dirt bikes, one once silver Hummer pulled by a robot canine sled team. In the sand, someone not seen has scratched with a stick or tire iron. Raven, where are you? So that's what I dictated. And that is actually just completely straight. I just That know- is incredible. That's phenomenal. That is one of the coolest fucking things I've heard in a long time. That is so badass. Thank you for sharing that. So cool. So cool. Well, thank you. And I, I'll, I'll hold over to next week. The strange, well, it, it's both more composed. I was able to get to this uh, fairly quickly because I was able to salvage that imagery. And I think you can hear in my phrasing, I mean, I was completely groggy, but it's it's ridiculous. But you can hear the, the, the poetic assurance of it, the alliteration, the fact that I'm already in mm-hmm. the groove of trying to express something and trying to recover something and trying to discover something new that the dreaming had led me to. Right, right. Or That's your idea. Or you're just that close to it, right? Yes. You know, um, in your phrasing there, you're you're saying that you are sort of coming alive and ready to articulate, but I, I would think about it more like you you had this powerful dream and the poetry was already there because poetry and dreaming is the same thing. Which is what makes human beings so amazing, right? Uh, the the ability to, uh, because that I mean I, I I would love if you could send that to me in an email because I would like to read that again, um, but it's so good and so well written and so vivid, and the some of the choices that you make are so intuitively beautiful that you had to have been close. You had, you were close to the source, right? You woke up and you were, you were right there. Yeah. Um, I think that's a beautiful way to put it of close to the source. I'll tell you what, you know, I will send that to you and I'll send to you the, then the, the more awakened composed uh, piece that I got to about an hour later over coffee. And I'd love to hear you read that to start next episode, because it's kind of a call. It, it, it's a little miniature sort of manifesto of what we've been, you know, involved with from the start. And I'm in favor of like multiple manifestos. I think everything yeah. should be that manifestation, you know, all the time, but yeah. manifesto is a, a verb way to start next episode. I think. I think that would be awesome. Okay. And I think on that note, we'll call it a night. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thank you, Taboo. Thank yeah. you, listeners. <laughs> be safe. Be well. And uh, yeah, don't let the bad Christmas music drive you nuts. And I'm not going to sing that one terrible song 
there's a guy on the corner of Tropicana and Maryland Parkway, and that's one of his hustles to people. He says, if you give me some money, I won't sing the worst Christmas song and have it go through your head all day. So thanks, everyone. Good night. Thanks.